Hello, this is Melissa, and it is Real History. I am joined today by Michael in Sweden. I spoke with him uh, a while back. I lose track of time, but it's probably been at least six weeks, maybe eight weeks now. He had some time off from work. Uh, he works really hard, and his schedule keeps him on the go, and we just wanted to record something while he had a chance to relax a little bit. So we recorded this on the 8th of July because of Michael's holiday schedule, and it is going up on Thursday, the 27th of July, 2023. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hello. I'm doing Okay. <laughs> I always uh, use a phrase that uh, Alan used, uh, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it sounds, you know, it gives a perfect indication of how things are always. <laughs> not too bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about along those lines this morning because sometimes I... I just complain too much. That's the bottom line. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, just don't do that. You know, people ask you how you are, and they don't really care. So, <laughs> not too, not too bad is a good answer. Yeah, yeah. What is new with you, and what is new in Sweden? Uh, during the, I think after we spoke. I had the chance to travel to uh, other countries and uh, with work, and it was extremely interesting to be able to compare Sweden a little bit with uh, the other European countries. Where did you I go? Uh, I went to uh, Germany, uh, Hungary, and uh, Belgium. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, so it was pretty interesting to compare those three countries in those short time I was there. What kind of work were you doing? It was just a safety conference that we had to go and uh, there was a gathering from um, other European countries of our companies. Mm -hmm. So we're going there to discuss some safety issues, how we report accidents and so on. For the company. Interesting. How much time were you able to spend in each country? I was in Germany for two days, Belgium for a day, Budapest for three days. What were you able to observe and learn while you were there? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I think the flight was the most incredible because when we uh, took off from Sweden, I saw the engineering directly and really? it was so yeah <laughs> it was so interesting because when the plane took off and you know it just hit me like wow finally I can observe this in a different view so of course I was looking out the window all the time to see if I can uh, spot something that I don't see while on the ground and it was incredible the the clouds were, we were just above the clouds, but above us was the geoengineering. Really? So it was interesting to see how far up there they were. Yeah, Alan talked to someone who did a lot of flying. The, he the, Actually, the husband and wife, and they were both pilots, mm -hmm. and they 
were able to report similar things to you that, you know, they could, even though they both were, they flew commercially and privately, nobody talks about it in their industry. You have to witness it with your eyes only, and you don't really talk about it, what you see. Because your coworkers will tell you that you're mad. They must see the same thing, but nobody mm-hmm. talks about it. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because in the when the plane is about to take off, they tell you to switch everything off because it will interfere with the flight's radar and so on. But then above you is something else. That's an interesting thing you just said about the the radar because years ago, when the cell phones first came out. We got that all the time here in the states, or and, and and when I traveled other places, you had to turn your cell phone off. Yeah. But I noticed that the last that I flew here in the United States last year, and they weren't giving. And everybody around me had their cell phone on or their laptop on, and you know, it's like, well, why was that not good? 12 years ago but or 15 years ago or 20 years ago when the cell phones first came out but now it's okay yeah and it's crazy because uh, i flew with my sister once and she forgot to turn it off uh, or put her phone in flight mode and nothing happened <laughs> yeah so, yeah <laughs> you saw that with your own eyes what did yeah. it look what did it look like yeah it was pretty much more like you see on the ground, but a lot clearer, let's say. And, of course, totally different from regular clouds. And uh, Were you able to see above you? I mean, the, the, this was going on above you, the chemtrails. Were you able to see any planes laying them down? No, it, no. they had already done it. And this no. was about 7 in the morning, so mm-hmm. yeah, everything was like done when uh, we were up there so all you could see is the marks in the sky mm-hmm. and of course it's done opposite uh, the sun so yeah everything you see on the ground was so interesting to see it up there and of course i noticed the weather on those days where i felt that it was a lot of markings in the sky it was exactly like a, a greenhouse if you have a greenhouse and it's a very warm day and you go in there, the weather on those days were exactly the same, very humid and, uh, yeah, you can't breathe too much. It's just, you feel more suffocated on those days. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a placebo. <laughs> well, what I've been hearing the last of several months, few months indeed, is that People from all different parts of the world are reporting heavier than normal spraying. Are you observing mm. that there? Yeah, I think this is the only year which I have had uh, pollen allergies, and I saw that this year it was a lot more uh, spraying than previous years because I always uh, take pictures of it, and I have many pictures from previous years with the with the halo around the sun. But this year, is, is the mush, the mushy clouds where the sun is there and then it's gone in like 30 minutes and it's just mushy, all white. Mm-hmm. Seems like it's a lot more heavier this time around. You know, here where I live, it's 
really hot in August and into the early part of September. Sometimes it'll start with in really high temperatures in late July, and we're talking for at least six weeks, sometimes two months. We will have temperatures that are often, say, between 38 or 39 and 42 Celsius, and sometimes even higher than that, even higher. So, mm. I, I, I mean, last year we had temperatures that were like, oh, I don't know, what did it get up to? It got over 110 Fahrenheit, which is like 44 Celsius. So we had a couple of days where it was 43, 44 Celsius, really, really hot. But the point that I'm making is that that's not completely outrageous for that time of the year. But here, those temperatures started about three weeks ago, and we had two, almost three weeks, where we were breaking 40 degrees Celsius every single day. It was unbearable. And we had something different for this area, which is what you're describing, that greenhouse humidity. It's mm. Typically, you can tolerate the intense heat because the humidity is quite low, but here we've had this high humidity as well. Uh, anyway, it's not natural. It's not normal. And it is, no. a, glo- <laughs> it is a global warming. <laughs> no. But that's a, that's a... I think that is the nice... Uh, things that you notice when you are aware of um, how things work. So, although things can be uh, pretty gloom, because you understand, it, it can be also nice to understand why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is so true. In a way, when I, yeah, when I observe these things and I I'm like, oh, God, here we go again. But at least you understand why it is the way it is. Yes, that's, uh, well, that's one thing that Alan would say often is there, there, he actually used the word satisfaction, but he said Mm. there, there can be tremendous satisfaction that you have just to understand. You know, you, you may, there may be things that you can't do anything about. Um, you'll you'll have sorrow and anger and frustration, but that feeling of satisfaction, especially if, if you've spent any portion of your life beating yourself up or engaged in self-destructive behavior, mm. it is satisfying to figure it out. Yeah, and it's it's crazy because today I was listening to um, one of Alan's talk from July fourth. Um, I believe 2007, and uh, I think the title was uh, "Modern Mythology: Enemies Versus the, Ma- uh, the Man in the Mirror." Mm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a good one. And, yeah, I listened to that almost uh, on repeat four times because I felt <laughs> there was so <laughs> there was so much in there. Which um, on the first listen. A lot of the things blow past you, they go over your head a little, but then the second listen through, the third, and then the fourth, is extracting a lot of uh, knowledge. And uh, of course, it made me think a lot about 
one of the things he mentions the most uh, that we take for granted why the individual becomes awake. So I think. What did I, he? I don't, did he elaborate on that, or just say that you know we we take it for granted when really it's a miracle? Yes, exactly. The first miracle when he describes the first miracle and the fact that uh, people don't normally reflect on that. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, because we always want more than, uh, or want to know more about other things, but we never stop to actually appreciate the first miracle in a way. You know, there was something that Alan said. He remarked, I, I know that he must have said this on air a time or two between, say, 2018 and 2021, but it's something that he said to me a few times, which is, well, we can't know everything. And that seems so obvious, like a simplistic thing, but I was always so amazed at what Alan did know, at the research that he had done and what he had been able to discover for himself. And he had such a clear understanding, a deep, profound understanding, and he was able to put that across to people so well. And so to have him say, we can't know everything, it's impossible at this level to to even do more than scratch the surface. Yeah. And I think he was reminding himself that, you know, that first miracle is the, is of such importance that you wake up, that you know that reality is not as it is presented to you, and that in fact it is an elaborate construct to keep you always in the dark. Mm. And that it's always been that way, or it has been that way for eons. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you the question then? <laughs> How did you wake up? Well, I, I, I think it's uh, has been a gradual process for me, and <laughs> I um, think that in a way it's an ongoing process. But mm-hmm. um, I, I will say that there were parts of it that were quite sudden and dramatic or it felt dramatic to me and the probably I had this kind of gnawing sensation uh, in my head always and the best that I could say is there's this old Peggy Lee song is that all there is it's kind of a smoky you know lounge song And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears, and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to the circus? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, 
And it's like you, you know, you, I just felt that I had done all of the things that I had set out to do and that my life was flowing along beautifully at that point. And I had this empty feeling inside if I ever stopped long enough to sit with it. And most of the time I didn't. I kept really busy and I kept focused on my goals and all of the everything that came with my life the way that it was then. But I would have these moments where I felt that I was actually actively participating in stuffing down uh, that uncomfortable feeling. Mm -hmm. And I was like that for a while. And, um, and I'd say that like many, many other people, there, there were some self-destructive qualities to the way that I lived my life. I think most of us might do things when we aren't listening to our conscience or that inner voice that are self-destructive in one way or another. Even working too much is a form of self-destruction. So when I stumbled upon Alan, his work, his, his, the very first time that I heard him, it was as if um, a loud gong had sounded, and I knew immediately that that I said, this man is telling the truth. And I'm not sure that I've ever heard truth before in my life. And, you know, there, there were, I listened and listened and listened to his talks. And there were other things, too. You know, I was, I was raised a Christian. And I hadn't really been maintaining any sort of a religious practice at mm. all. You know, I was, I went the way of so many people in a kind of a new agey, where I would, I, I even said, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, you know, I mean, and I'm sorry, but what does that really mean? You know, you know, you have to think about what you're saying and what does it really mean? And one of the things that, one of the reactions that I had to listening to Alan before, before I actually spoke to him or communicated with him in any way was this, I knew that Alan was a Christian. And I don't mean that in the sense of following a, you know, dogma or even proclaiming I am a Christian. I'm saying that if may possibly one of the most important things that Jesus gave people to understand is that you lay you are you are at least willing but you lay down your life for your brother and your brother mm. is someone that you've never met before right you know so you 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 are willing to lay down sacrifice 
yourself. What I was saying there is that I had not thought about religion or Christianity or um, anything from the way that I was raised or the or the beliefs of my childhood in many, many years. But it was like a cold water in my face when I listened to him and I, I, I listened hours and hours and hours and it is at, at, at that point in my career I had started my own business and I worked at a home office and I was you know on the go and busy with work but I, I had ample time to listen to at least two or three of his talks a day as I was you know doing other things or you know, it kind of keep even half an ear on it. And I did that for a long time, just listening to the talks and absorbing it. And I really was struck by, I'm sorry, I'm taking too long to answer your question, but I was really struck that, that this man was living in a way a more, a more beautiful and amazing example of Christianity than anything that I had ever witnessed my entire life uh, around uh, people who are nominal Christians, that means Christians in name, self-professing Christians, and uh, and then there was Alan. Mm. Yeah. And then part of the process was being with him and having him either gently or not gently tell me all of the places in which my thinking was not uh, good <laughs> or correct or right or whatever and then um, after after Alan passed away I had a series of experiences and I don't really like to uh, I haven't talked about them publicly and I won't today either but the grief process was profound and it is ongoing still and I, I'm telling you, Michael, that I had experiences that were quite vivid and let me know in, in, in an experiential way what I only really understood intellectually before, including all of the things that I might have witnessed or discussed with Alan, that mm. there is more to this world than meets the eye. Um, yeah. And they, you know, Alan always said your experiences only need to make sense to you, and that's why he never really talked too much about his own experiences. But, and that's why I say that waking up is ongoing because with Alan's passing opened up a whole new. Sorry, but mm. I, I don't want to be emotional, but it opened up a whole new vista of what mm. reality is and it also focused me in a way I, I would certainly have said that I worked incredibly hard when I was with Alan and felt a sense of total dedication but it was only in with his passing and then the ultimate 
thought processes that I went through and dealing with grief and understanding that keeping Alan's work going was number one priority, but it, it was the process of under, of, I'm still discovering just how hard that is to do what I just said I was going to do. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, as Alan, I, I can just say that not a day goes by that I don't have a sense of loving him more, but definitely having respect that just grows and grows and, and um, understanding of what he sacrificed, what he, the tremendous amount of um, internal, he was at peace with, with the incredible undertaking that he did, mm. you know? Yeah. Mm. And I, I, I totally agree because I, for somebody who has listened to his talks, almost all of it, two, three times, I've gone through them a lot. And I could even sense the difference between his, um, his, um, views or his passion because, uh, I felt like the first, uh, 2006 until 2009, the person he was and then after that and then also during the COVID times he is I could I could analyze it as three you know incredible different not different people but um, different level of uh, calmness in a way because mm-hmm. I, I feel like when he started speaking in 2006 it was more of a educational and information and the knowledge there it was incredible everything he was saying I could not believe how he could remember all that stuff and then towards the end of 2009 onwards to 2014 I think he had uh, some issues some health issues between then and then I felt like it was also a, a different view there and it was more he he's extremely honest but he was much more open and more uh, I felt like he was more comfortable to say things because there was a sense of calmness you know with the way he was talking and the material he was presenting so in a way listening to him so much I feel I appreciate all the different uh, different I wouldn't say modes you went through, you know, and I could relate to it so much because the first time I started listening to him, I was extremely confused, very confused because he was, like you said, uh, hearing truth for the first time. (laughs) It's really hard to compare it to anything. And once you start doing the research and so on, you're able to understand uh, everything he was saying was true. And then came the part where you had to think for yourself, and I believe that was the period after the after 2009 for me, let's say, mm-hmm. listening to it. And that period, I believe, was the hardest for me because all of a sudden I had to 
understand that I have to think for myself. I, I cannot just take his views or somebody else's view or any, I had to actually make my own decisions because all of a sudden I understand and I have all this knowledge which he provided. So I believe that I actually started waking up or more like started making my own decisions during the COVID time with the information that he was providing. So I take it like I was able to live and like you would say, claim my brain after mm-hmm. going through all those stages. Yeah. You know, um, o- over the years, we had so many computers that just gave up the ghost or, you know, I, I had to pull out a hard drive and rescue the drive or we'd have to reformat a computer to, you know, get it working. But But I still would love it if I could get together some of the old bust hard drives and computers where I have old, old mail saved and organize it all in a way. And I kept, one of the things that I kept, um, two kinds of folders in the mail. Um, and I still have some of them, you know, believe me, but not the, the quantity of mail of testimonials to Alan but also of what I called good answers. And good mm. answer, because I did a lot of emailing, but um, the good answers were above my pay grade. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I, I sometimes people would write in and I'd say, okay, I have no idea. Yeah. And <laughs> so uh, in those good answers... He would tell people some things like waking up is like peeling the layers of an onion. And you'll do a lot of crying, too. But mm-hmm. you, you peel one layer, and then there's another one to go, and there's another. And sometimes part of his good answer might be telling somebody something like waking up and deprogramming, if you want to use that word, is the work of a lifetime. Yeah. He said he would say, you know, we're growing through our whole life. Hopefully, we are growing, and that's you know when you said when you started to wake up. I, I, I don't want to say I'm. I spent have much time for navel gazing, but I do get these moments of insight with myself where I can see my weaknesses, my flaws, my strengths, etc. Mm. And one of the things that I just was that went through my head yesterday because I I I talk to Alan every day and and I you know, I talk to the creator or God or in whatever, I don't have a word for it, but I I put Alan up there <laughs> right up there on that level. <laughs> so I just talk to them. <laughs> Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times I'm complaining because nobody else wants to hear it. Um, But one thing that went through my head when I was having my chat 
is how far away I am in my thinking from where I was two years ago. And yes, granted, I was still in the raw early stages of this intense grief, but I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about the active awareness that I'm on a spiritual journey and to look back at the interior of my mind two years ago. And I'm not beating myself up by saying this, but I was like a spiritual child two years ago to to the strengths and um, calm and so forth that I feel now. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes when I get these flashes, I feel profoundly sorry for Alan. You know, somebody asked me uh, six months ago or so if if Alan had like an equal, like a you know, an intellectual equal, someone that he could connect with in that way. And I said no, and that that made mm-hmm. me that made me sad, and it still makes me sad. But it isn't wasn't just intellectual. It was it was. I hate that word spiritual, but it was that, for lack of a better word. He mm-hmm. was on a a the work that he had done the journey that he had gone on on his time on this earth in what he called the middle plane was so intense it was so focused and dedicated both in um the dedication to learn and to get knowledge and understanding but also into looking at the man in the mirror and seeing himself and seeing his part and things and overcoming those weaknesses you know this was intense and so I kind of sometimes look back at my time with him and feel a little bit sorry because if I was a spiritual child two years ago then I was virtually an infant when I was with him (laughs) that's how I feel also I feel the same that um yeah, it feels like every week or even the speed of uh, the way my mind thinks is not the same. You know, every week is a, I will call it improvement in that better direction, let's say. And I totally understand that. Yeah, it feels like you are, when you look back, you don't really understand so much, but I think the gradual prog- progress is extremely nice to see when you also can reflect on that Mm -hmm. and you're right it is good it is good to remember that first miracle that first coming into because i still i don't know if you um if you had that feeling but i know when i talked to jude to Judy on real history, she kind of had it too. And the the humorous part of it is, is you're running around like a crazy conspiracy theorist, telling everybody, "Oh, blah 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 blah." But behind that, and even if you don't do that, there is this incredible sensation there was for me that my head had just cracked open. <laughs> you know, like like I. 
I didn't know anything, and then all of a sudden I knew something amazing, which was life was nothing like we'd been told that it was. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, too, Michael, that um, from the moment that you asked me about the waking up process, I could feel emotional, uh, the the sensation that I was... Um, just a blink of an eye away from tears and that feeling is still with me it's very emotional for me to talk about it because it is because so much of what I feel that I am learning and knowing and growing into only happened after Alan passed some I had some pretty amazing experiences while he was still alive, and one of them just had to do with the beginning of you know Operation COVID, um, mm. where I knew that this was it. You know, this was it in a real big, huge, dramatic way, and that I that as that as much as I thought I was doing, and as hard as I was working, and as you know intense as the pace always had been there that it was going to get much much more intense and it did and you mm. know to know that i had to have the strength to get through that and that that was a big i guess i'm what i'm saying is that it makes me feel really good that i was able to demonstrate that kind of ability to cope and uh, deal with intensity mm. while Alan was alive, you know. I mean, I like to think that he's looking down and he's he's pleased, but it, it really feels good to know that while he was a living, breathing person on this plane with me, that I, I came through in a big yeah. way while he was there. Yeah, that's nice. That's really nice. You know, I also feel the same. That uh, after he passed away, I actually grew more as a person. Because, um, like I explained to you before, all of a sudden, I have to... I am not uh, updated with the latest news and where what direction this is going in a a much more detailed way, but all of a sudden I have to stand on my own uh, two feet. And uh, it was extremely different. So I think yeah. we uh, we grow a lot also from having to deal with that challenge ourselves. I know that for people who didn't meet Alan, might not have spoken with him, might not have even communicated with him very much by email, there was, amongst many, many people, a profound sense of loss and a feeling, too. I remember hearing people write in an email. They, they said, now what do we do? <laughs> what yeah. do we do? And I, I just hoped, I, I thought, you know, and then many, many people said, you know, He's gone just when we needed him the most. Mm. And I thought, well, may maybe, maybe. 
but I also know that there is a almost a magical quality to life and I wonder you know he was doing four and five hour talks that last year plus I just wonder he certainly left us a wealth a wealth of information and yeah I I miss too the fact that week in and week out we don't have that analysis of the latest what what is the latest what are they doing and here's a way of thinking of it but the big thing it's just like you said he wanted us to think for ourselves and to be able to be strong enough to say no to take a stand and you can't do that I mean that's another spiritual lesson that I learned I remember talking to Neil Foster um, very very not very long after Alan passed away about the about how it how I had I I was conscious of the fact that in a way I thought of Alan as my buffer because I'm a woman he's a man he's a you know it's a buffer between me and the big bad world and yeah. Neil knew what I was talking about because he's married and he understands that it really is a male female thing you know the man is a buffer to the big bad world for the woman and to face the world to know that okay that that buffer is gone so what i'm saying i'm extrapolating from my experience out to other people because i know many people including many men also had this elder wise man Alan as the buffer between them and just how awful reality can is is yep that's true yeah well you opened up a can of worms there by asking me that so I'm just going to sit back and let you talk you want to talk more about your uh, anything I'll just hang here and listen well, I mean, the talk I was listening from Alan this morning actually uh, is the one on my mind. And uh, I think that uh, I've heard the latest talk, The Real History with Others, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, it's uh, amazing what goes around in the world. Uh, this week I had a couple of security company come to me, try to sell me uh Security surveillance, <laughs> and immediately mind went to 1984 when Winston walked into his uh, house, and then there was a camera, and he had to show his um, yeah his bag and uh, if he has if he's hiding anything. And this company was offering me to have cameras around my house and in my house in case somebody breaks in, and <laughs> I started smiling because. Immediately, <laughs> to my mind, and I was like, "Wow, what a great uh, disguise to have um, a company come and install, sell you uh, security." You know, it's, it sounds so nice on the surface, but you know, if you know where we are heading, you don't really want that. Yeah, so I, I had that experience, and immediately uh, that came into my mind, and. 
the talk I was listening to this morning, Alan spoke about the fact that sometimes you can experience uh, things which you you cannot compare it with any anything you've been through. And um, I think what happens to me uh, when I hear his talks is the fact that the things he talks about, it actually had I go through it in the real life, let's say. And uh, this is his way of explaining how things are, but then you live it and go through it, and then it's uh, it's so interesting to uh, to have that synchronicity. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's just uh, I know many people think it's a burden to be awake because your your mind is working a little bit more than everybody else, but for me, it's more comfortable to be awake than not to be well you also you know once you when you can still your mind or get that calm that we were talking about earlier <clears throat> you you also have tapped into a place or you've made a little opening into a place that you can get to more and more often and that place of intuition or just kind of a a knowing place, whatever you want to call it. When you're talking about synchronicities, the synchronicities would happen to Alan so much, so often. Uh, They would happen to me around him, and he said, I, I, I... I'll probably keep his exact words to myself, but that, but what he was describing to me is that part of the process of being awake and increasing in your awareness that that is where you are and then committing yourself to doing something with it, it actually is an opening for those experiences, if mm. you will. And so I don't know if you have found this to be, but when you're, it's almost, it's like being in in the groove. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you're in the groove, things just come to you or, you know, those experiences of thinking about somebody and then they call or um, looking for something, the moment that it's in your head that you want it, boom, there it is. You know, these kinds of places where you're, that's just the best way of saying it. You're in the groove. Yeah. Yeah, that happens to me a lot. And, uh, it's funny because I'm listening to a talk from, um, 2006, 2007, and then the next day or the same day something happened relating to that topic. And it's so, Interesting, because his talks are timeless. Yes. And I, um, I was discussing with my wife, and she, she was like, "Wait, what is this website cutting through the matrix?" <laughs> I, I explained what it was, and she was like, "Okay, so that book you have over there, that is where that is coming from." And I was like, "Yeah." And I told her, "You can read it if you want." She's like, "No." I, I don't have time to read. Okay, sure, no problem. <laughs> so my one of my daughters went and saw the book, and she's like, what is this book? And I told her it was my favorite book. And she's like, why is it your favorite book? 
And I thought I was able to help me understand everything that I've been wondering all my life. And the difference is that when she grows up, she will understand that this will be her favorite book also. So I'll keep it in a very good condition for her to use it in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah, that sounds good. I would like to read it when I grow up. So my small one, she, she's a little bit more sneaky. <laughs> and she, she went to take the book instead of going through it. And, and I told her, you are not ready for this. Just let the book be. So now there is a big curiosity about the book on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> you you told is, me the last time we spoke, your youngest daughter just had a birthday, but what, was she going to be six? Yeah. Or, six. Oh, okay. All right. That's good. Mm. See, yeah. I don't even take fish oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and it's crazy because when uh, this morning I was uh, listening to the talk and he spoke about uh, children having this uh, telepathic ability which gets trained out of them as, as we get older and so on and I notice the same in my children, and uh, in Sweden, if you are talking with somebody and you say the same word, there's a there's a slang you say. So that basically means you said the same thing at the same time. Um, we and have I, that here too. It's jinx, and then you count jinx one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. What's the Swedish one? Smooth. <laughs> Smooth. Yeah, like a Smurf. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So then I noticed that, you know, my children are eight and six, and I see that uh, happening between them a lot. But what I notice also is that it's happening within the family, that we are all having those moments where we are all saying the same thing at the same time, and it's like, what? <laughs> What's going on? And... I don't know whether listening to the talk made me pay more attention to that, but it was so interesting to observe also. So it doesn't matter how old the talk is, it's extremely relevant to being a human. And uh, Yes, yes. Yeah. That's what is impressive about Alan, that he knew so much about everything. Yeah. He really did. Just amazing. <laughs> What else did you have a, a chance to observe or experience on your trips? Well, um, I think it was the climate, uh, climate agenda, let's say. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in uh, Germany and in Belgium, they had so many windmills. They had so many windmills, and uh, when you are above in the sky, you can see them everywhere. And uh, we were close to one, not far away, and the sound coming from it is incredible. And uh, I know in Sweden that they have some issues with the farmers because they want to put them very close to the, uh, where they are living, and it's a big battle to not have them because of the health issues related relating to it also. So in Sweden, it wasn't as uh, many as in Belgium and uh, Germany. And even a country like 
Hungary, which I was extremely surprised that with the, you know, the spraying there also was a lot. And mm -hmm. it, it's just everywhere you go, it's the same thing. So I, I thought before Sweden had more spraying than any other place because I'm not sure if it was a year or two years ago, they announced in the, one of the universities that they were going to start doing the testing. But we all know they have been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. But they said it in the, the university release a statement about them uh, doing a collaboration to do the testing. Yeah, they did the same thing here where it's like, well, well sometime we might have to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, of course, I thought, wow, I'm leaving Sweden to go to a different country, but then it was the same thing. It was nothing so different. Everything was more like, yeah, the whole world is catching up to the same culture and the same everything. You could not tell the difference between Germany and Sweden, except maybe different cars and uh, the language. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, Hungary, I, you were there for three whole days, but um, the yeah. the way that Hungary is portrayed, at least in the United States, and I don't know about how what kind of a reputation it has in Europe, but it's mm. this far-right, nationalist, populist country run by a far right, you know, I mean, he's, he's practically a dictator if you want to hear the left-leaning news describe him in the U.S., simply because he has rhetoric, at least, that puts his own country first. So that being said, where do you see Hungary's compliance with all of the sustainability and, uh, you know, in terms of at least the propaganda that you get compared to, say, Germany or Belgium? I think on the surface, of course, they're all playing the game, but, um, I mean, I work with some Hungarians, and they are completely against that uh, government, let's say. But, because uh, they all know that the climate, uh, or the ones that I speak to, are aware that the climate goes, which... Uh, the European Union have is not really right. And I think the Hungarians that I speak to are a little bit more aware. And uh, I know this guy, which is, he's, he's interested in cars. So uh, when the EV cars came and I asked him about it, like, are you going to get one now? Because they are a lot more stronger than the other cars because they pump so much uh, power into them. And he, and I was surprised because he loved cars and he said, no, I will never get one of those uh, cars because of the fact that they think it's better for the environment, but it's not because of the production and so on. So it, it was nice to see somebody who was, you would not classify as awake, but aware of, you know, of, of uh, the deception of that. So I think if you, if you speak to people, you know, regular people, they are, they are not really going with what the media is giving out, of course. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, they were supposed to have a 40% inflation, but <laughs> the fuel prices were still cheaper than in Sweden. Mm. And we were uh, that high on inflation. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, the, the, the cost of food and cost of living there has gone up, but still, if you were coming from Sweden, it was like half price, let's say. Mm. Now, the, I mean, Hungary is a, a member of the EU, but do you think because they have a president who, on the surface, is so resistant to many of the EU policies... Do you feel that's a trickle down with the people so that maybe the average Hungarian is a little more skeptical than the average Swedish or German person or no? What do you- yeah, I think so. I think that the average Hungarian is more skeptical because here, um, I mean, that's the difference I see here between other nations is that they don't really question their government here. So it's more like going along and just... And the Swedish way or the Nordic ways, they, they have a saying where if you're angry, you just pinch yourself in your pocket. So you don't really show any emotions or <laughs> anger. <laughs> you just carry on. <laughs> I remember at work, there were, <clears throat> when the uh, protest started in France over the retirement age, uh, they raised it and... Uh, there were a few people talking, and they were like, if it was Sweden, we would just shut up and just go along with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that was the that is the case with uh, Sweden. They could raise prices, they could do whatever, and you see very little group uh, doing any sort of protest unless you are funded by the by George Soros, like uh, Greta right. was. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's too. It's, I was thinking about that this morning because I was working on the the redux that's going to go up, and Alan was talking about how groups are used, like little revolutionary, the so-called protest groups that are only authorized. Yeah, and I was thinking about the the truckers protest up in Canada over the lockdown and the other policies and um, the I think most with the truckers it was mostly vaccine status of crossing the border but the with Germans they were protesting over lockdown you've got the French who've been protesting but these kinds of things that are not I mean most of the protests that we get are are like climate activists Mm. they're authorized protests I mean it would be really great if people would get away from their computer and go take to the street or their government building over some of the things that really matter to them yeah but no Sweden is totally the opposite you will not hear any word unless (laughs) it's a founded group Mm. Yeah, and one one strange thing happened to me the, last week because um, I decided to start growing my own vegetables and so on, and uh, I went to the to the local supermarket and I was looking for uh, organic food, and uh, they do. I I looked everywhere. Normally they are on a certain shelf, and the lady was like. Yeah, we don't bring them here anymore because people don't buy it. And and I I was like, what? Yes, what do you mean people don't buy it? And she's like, 
Yeah, the organic food, when we bring them, we always have to throw them away because uh, people are not buying that. It, and she's like, it is what it is. And I, was, and I was shocked because I was thinking to myself, they raised the price of food so much that the non-organic became the same price as the organic. So it, it would not make sense for people not to buy the organic. Mm-hmm. But apparently, we are still buying the non-organic. That is a strange habit. I know in, in Canada, the price of organic food was so much more than other, other food that was, was not organic. That word drove Alan crazy, I have to tell you. <laughs> he just hated the word organic. He said, you know, it's just food. He said, yeah. it's, he said, why don't we label the other stuff as, uh, you know, modified and covered in pesticides and the other and, and organic? Why don't we just call that food? <laughs> 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 but I, what I do see here in the States is, well, first of all, I, I had to do a, a quick run to the grocery store yesterday for a few things. And it's discouraging because the price of food is just so crazy so expensive but the one thing that i did notice is that they there was a fair selection of organic food and it really wasn't more expensive for the most part than you know than the modified covered in pesticide food yeah yeah what else have you been thinking about and what else has been on your mind Mm, yeah well I also thought about the the website uh, cutting through the matrix. I was just thinking, you know, you know, it has so much knowledge there, and I hope that everybody is uh, contributing so the website can keep going. Because even though somebody like myself, I I have downloaded most of the materials from there, I still uh, save those material. Uh, on a hard drive, but I'm going on the website every day and uh, uh, streaming the talk I want to listen to. And I think uh, Alan mentioned in one of his uh, talks long time ago about why he was um, uh, charging for the books. And uh, he spoke about the fact that even though not everybody will be able to afford it, that you will be able to get some income to keep the stuff which are free, free for those that can uh, still use it. And I think that is uh, very important for us who use the website and have used the website to keep it alive as much as possible. Well, that would be great. I can say that. You know, um, the... A couple of days ago, I made a little video for YouTube because I hadn't been able to post there in a few weeks because it's just been a challenging channel for me to understand what is safe to put up there. And I made a video to thank the subscribers there, but I called it Cutting Through the Matrix 101. And I, somebody told me that um, they said they had read a comment about the website because they were just so ugly. They said, it's like a box of crayons exploded. And that made me laugh. (laughs) You know, I'm like, 
because the the websites were done by volunteers and they've never changed. But I, to me, my perspective is so what that they're that they're ugly and so what that they're unwieldy. If you want to call it unwieldy, there are thousands and thousands of hours there. It's the most in- profound knowledge. It's the most incredible website on earth. And, you know, too bad for you if you can't bother to spend the time learning how to navigate it. But I made Mm. a little half-hour video where I made pictures of the website, and then I talked people through it. I said, this button here, it does that. The button next to Mm. that does that. And just basically took them on a a journey, not the entire website, but a good overview of how to navigate, how to get around, because it... Like you said, there's so much there that's free. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Alan never did put it, things behind the so-called paywall. Uh, you know, you want to go on there, it's great if people order the discs. That's wonderful because it does keep the website going. It does keep things moving along if they order material. But thousands of hours of talks are available for free download, and that, that's just an amazing thing. Yeah, that's true. And um, of course, I don't. Um, I think also the hard part for people is uh, probably where to start. You know, if you go on a website, where do you start? And I, I think the first uh, time I went on the website uh, many years ago is uh, the fact that you need to realize yourself that you know he has been posting since this date, so just start from there. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I, I when I started listening, I went to listen to the latest talk, and then I, I just okay, let's stop everything and let's start from the start. Mm-hmm. And that's how it worked for me. And then I was able to create a playlist with um, all the months, January to December, and then I put all the talks in that. So. Now we are in uh, July. I'm listening to all the talks that he made in July. And it's uh, extremely random because it's all throughout all the years in July. Ah, and that's an interesting approach. Yeah, so in a way, I when he talks about the weather, I'm still comparing to see, was it the same in 2007 as he's saying? And, you know, it's exactly the same. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, and I, for me, it's really nice to do that because it, it gives me a very big uh, refresh of um, keeping up with this work. Well, I, you know, I've played around with different. You know, people say, "Well, where should I start? Where should I start?" And I've played around with different approaches, um, but I do think that the reality check videos, especially because people are quite visual. Mm. Now, and even though it's just the the first one was just Alan sitting on a couch and talking, but the second one, he adds in a few visual images and there's some music and it's more entertaining, but both of those give you a really incredible overview of the system, and I think it's a good place to start. You can start there visually, and then I... I think start like you've suggested starting with 
the early, early talks is a good way to do it. Sometimes I tell people to start on um, either the blurbs or the interviews. There's a, a, a set of five of the inter, five discs with the different interviews that he did with people. And I like those because for the most part, when he went on a show, not all the hosts, but many of the hosts were brand new to the information that he was sharing. And so you know that their audience is also going to be new to it as well. And Alan had a really great way of making those interviews that he did quite intense overviews of the system, but delivered in a really clear, simple, easy-to-understand fashion. So I always think those are good starting points, too, because you get a variety. You can hear him talking to a lot of different people, and uh, he just lays out the agenda in a really simple fashion. So, Michael, before we wrap it up, is there anything else, any other thing that you wanted to get off your chest or talk about or well i just want to say that i'm very glad that i came across alan's uh, work and uh, although there are many challenges of uh, keeping your mind once again it's really nice to have a very big library to dig into and that helps a lot for somebody like myself yes yeah Well, I think this is great that we were able to have another conversation while you have a bit of downtime from work and you're just uh, mostly focused on gardening and enjoying that short Swedish summer. So, you know, what we should probably do is think about recording again. We should have a Sweden's shortest day of the year recording. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because there is a celebration called uh, Midsummer, the brightest day of the year ah. in Sweden. And uh. That dates back to thousands of years. So when when is that? What day is? Oh, that, that was. I think that was. Uh, it's called uh, Midsummer, and. Um, it's uh, one second. I will just check, and it's on the twenty third of June. Ah, okay. Yeah, so it's a holiday every year, and it's uh, the brightest day of the of the year. And they have this tradition where <laughs> they dance around an obelisk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very uh, pagan, very, very fertility. That, yeah, yeah, and uh, I experienced that when I came to Sweden, and uh, they they sing a song, and um, I asked a Swedish person what the song meant, and they had no idea. But mm-hmm. listening to it, it was yeah about fertility. Wow. I think we'll wrap it up for this recording, and it's been fun to talk to you, and and I I have to say you got me in places conversationally that I don't don't go, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) 
And we will talk again, and this was fun. And for those listening, thank you, and join me again next week for a different guest. Take care. Well, I've got something that the world didn't